But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. and They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. All right, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Matt Hand. I'm a pastor up at Grace City Church um, as the crow flies maybe a half mile from here. Here's, here's the way the last several years of my life have gone. I introduce myself to people in this community, and they say, oh, are you the pastor of the church that meets in the hangar, or are you the other church? And so we're the other church, all right? But it's great this morning to all be here together, worshiping together, and I want to I publicly say thank you to, to all Stapleton Fellowship folks for your hospitality, um, to Ryan and Jimmy and Tyson for specifically reaching out to us and inviting us and putting this all together. Um, it's been a great day so far. I think it's going to be a, a wonderful day. Um, let's pray again, and then we'll be in the Word in a couple places in Luke and John. Father, again, we just pause to, to ask your presence, God, through the Spirit in these next few moments, that, that your Word is, is living and powerful, and what we're talking about is not a myth or a fairy tale. It's not just someone's idea of, uh, you know, if we apply some of these ideas kind of subjectively, we can hope to get some encouragement out of it. This is the true and living story of how you led all of history to the point of a cross where God himself had taken on flesh and laid down his life and three days later rose again. And I pray that as we meditate on that this morning for the next few minutes that you'll let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So my card's on the table since many of you don't know me. You're in a Christian church this morning, and we are here together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I've read and I've studied a lot of the different theories that are out there about you know, what actually happened on that Easter morning, and I just don't personally believe that those different theories hold much water. This idea that the disciples just went to the wrong tomb, um, the idea that they themselves stole his body and hid it somewhere does not explain how their own lives were so radically transformed over the next few days, few months, and years, let alone explaining how these men went on to become martyrs for the faith that they believed. It's very hard to get someone to die for something that they know is a lie. It also doesn't account for what the Bible says are literally hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus die on the cross, but also saw him living, walking around, talking, and eating after the fact. 
So I believe the best explanation for the historical data that we have is that Jesus Christ, this real historical person, that he literally died and that three days later he bodily rose from the dead. It's actually the fulfillment of many Old Testament promises. If you go back to the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the days of Jesus on this earth, Isaiah, for example, prophesied that a righteous one would come and would lay down his life as an offering for sin and that God would raise him up. And I believe this is a fulfillment of that. So I'm working off the presupposition this morning that Jesus was a real person and that the events that Christians are celebrating this morning, that they happened in real space-time history. And what I'd like to do with this this morning is just have us consider three very simple points about the reality of Jesus' resurrection, one that touches our past, one that touches our present, and one that touches our still future. And what I'd like to do is illustrate these from the life of Peter. Peter showed up in our reading this morning just now, and I think we, a lot of us, relate to Peter. Out of all the disciples, for one thing, we have more information about Peter than we do a lot of the other disciples. But we see his zeal for the Lord. We see his love. We see his trust. We see him very often letting words come out of his mouth before he really thought them through very well. You know, for example, one time Jesus told him to do something that he didn't want to do, and he said, not so, Lord. Okay, that's, that's not something you say to the Lord. Not so. Um, Peter was impetuous. You know, he's, he's the one of all the disciples that asked Jesus, can I come to you and walk on the water? With, with no, never having seen that before. Peter was the one out of all the disciples that said, Jesus, if you are going to Jerusalem to die, then I'll take up my sword and I'll go and die with you. You're not dying without me. And if you know the story, he actually tried to make good on that promise in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was on the night he was betrayed. He took that sword and he hacked off a guy's ear. Okay? And it's probably because the guy ducked. Okay? Went like that, so he didn't decapitate him. So we relate to Peter. We, we, we love his love, we love his zeal, we love how impetuous, how hardworking, how interesting he is. But something happened in the final hours of Jesus' life that is just stunning if, you've, if you don't know the story. That in those hours when Peter saw Jesus betrayed in the garden, when Peter heard the accusations that were being brought against his Lord, when he saw that Jesus was not really going to defend himself, but he kind of saw the handwriting on the wall, the Bible shows us that Peter basically came unglued. So all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, show us that, that Peter, not once or twice, but three times, he denied Christ from a position in a courtyard where he could see Jesus on trial for his life. And the Bible actually says that after the third time Peter denied him, he hears, he hears a rooster crow, and he looks up, and he and Jesus make eye contact. And Peter runs off into the night, and his life plunges into despair. So that's Peter. I mean, he's done. He knows, I failed my Lord. In the hour of his greatest need, I did not stand with him, but I ran in fear. And that's John chapter 18. But it's Sunday. That's Friday. This is Sunday. Let's look forward to John chapter 20. So it's the first day of the week. And this is the day that Jesus had told his disciples over and over again, when I die, I will rise on this day. And you find something very interesting in what we just read, and that is that none of his disciples go to the tomb. There isn't one of them that's there watching and waiting to see, is it even possible that what Jesus said is going to come to pass, that it's true? There's not even one of them there. 
They're paralyzed by fear, the Bible says. They're locked behind closed doors. They're just waiting because they think my turn is coming next. They're coming for us, his closest followers. They're going to stamp out this Jesus movement. But someone has gone to the tomb, and her name is Mary Magdalene. And she finds something that, she, that even she did not expect to see, and that is that, that someone has rolled the, the stone blocking the tomb. She's rolled it, they, they've rolled it away from the door, and she goes in, and she supposes that someone has stolen his body. She runs back to the disciples. She tells them, someone's stolen the body of Jesus. Only then does Peter race to the tomb. And this is very important. In John chapter 20, we encounter two very important things that we need to wrestle with. One, verses 6 and 7 say that when Peter first got there to the tomb, he stoops, he looks in, he actually enters into the tomb, and he sees the grave clothes of Jesus, the linen cloth that had bound his body, and then the head cloth laying over here in a different place folded, but the body of Jesus is not there. And we read on in chapter 20, and the other interesting thing we find is later that day, Jesus bodily appears to Peter and the disciples, and then eight days later does it again, appears to them a second time. Now, that's interesting, and that's important for a couple reasons. One, if you had an, only an empty tomb, and no one ever saw Jesus after that, you could always wonder, well, that, an empty tomb by itself doesn't prove anything. You know, you, you've got an empty tomb, so maybe the Romans stole his body. I mean, maybe, maybe the Greeks stole his body. Maybe some of his own, other disciples that you don't know about, maybe they stole his body, or maybe wild animals got to him. And you would never know what happened to Jesus. Did he rise from the dead? Maybe. Now, if you had a body or what you think is a body, but not an empty tomb, let's say Peter says later, but, but I saw Jesus. I saw him in the distance with my own eyes. People could always say, but Peter, is it possible that that was just the spirit of Jesus? Is it possible that you were, seeing, you were hallucinating? You, know, you, were, you were seeing something that you wanted to see because of the grief in your heart and because of your love for the Lord. You just wanted to see Jesus. And maybe he would have thought, yeah, maybe that's it. But John 20 tells us that he saw both an empty tomb and the living Jesus. And that living Jesus walked with him and talked with him and ate food with him, showing I'm real flesh and blood, bodily risen from the grave. And I believe that the best explanation of those facts is that Jesus rose bodily from the tomb, just as the Old Testament says that he would. So what do you do when you come to John chapter 21 and you read verse 3? So Peter has witnessed all of this up to this point, but now he turns to his friends and he says, I'm going fishing. Basically what he's saying is, I can't do this Jesus discipleship thing. I'm, I'm going back to the life that I had before I became a follower of Jesus. That's what he's saying. And you say, what do you make of that? Why why would he do that? And I think the simple explanation is Peter knows I'm done. I'm done. I've failed Jesus so miserably. Like in the moments when Jesus needed me, I walked away. I ran away. I denied him. One of the gospels says I cursed him. And so Peter knows Jesus is alive. He's seen him. He's interacted with him. There's no doubt in my mind he feels happy about that. He feels joy. But there's a tension because in that joy is embedded a deep disgrace, a deep shame, a deep sense of Jesus and I both know what my last words were before he died. How can I go and tell other people, oh, you should believe in Jesus when I myself followed him for three years, and I didn't believe in Jesus. 
I didn't go to the tomb. I didn't think he was coming back. And Peter's dealing with all this shame and disgrace and sense of purposelessness with his life. So what does Jesus do? John 21. Does Jesus say, hey, good, Peter, I'm glad you got the message. You're done. I need to use people who can trust me from the get-go. No, you see, that's, that's, that's not even close to what Jesus does. Jesus actually pursues Peter to the Sea of Galilee. And we pick up our reading in John 21, verse 15, where Jesus has gone. He's appeared on the beach one morning, and this is what he says. He calls out to the disciples in a boat, and they come over, and they eat breakfast together. Now, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I stop right there for a second. I I pictured Jesus kind of gesturing to the nets and gesturing to the fish. Okay, you went back fishing. Do you... Do you love me more than you love fishing, Peter? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Get this, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, friends, this is an incredibly powerful exchange of words if you understand what's going on. What Jesus is doing, because the Bible says Peter was grieved. Why? Because Jesus said a third time, do you really love me, Peter? And what Jesus is doing is saying, in the place of your three denials, Peter, just a few days ago. I'm going to give you the opportunity to affirm me three times. Yes, Lord, I really love you. So the first main point there, if you're following along in your notes, is that in essence, what Peter, what Jesus is showing Peter is, because I'm risen, you have freedom from your past. And I see in this short exchange between Jesus and Peter, there are these three amazing things that are woven together. The first of them is that a living Savior means your guilt is removed. That's what, that's what Jesus is telling Peter. He's saying, okay, you have real objective guilt. You lied, Peter. You denied me. You did not have faith when you were commanded to have faith. Those are all sins. You're a broken person. But he's saying, objectively, Peter, I went to the cross and I took those sins and I nailed them to my cross. And you bear those sins no more. And when God raised me from the dead, Peter, that was, that was the Father's way of saying, I accept Jesus' sacrifice. You have no more debt to pay. You have no more sin to try to do good things to erase. A living Savior means your guilt is removed. You see also here that a living Savior means your shame is covered. Now, shame certainly is more subjective than guilt, but it's every bit as real. Those of you who have experienced deep shame, whether because of something that you've done or something that's been done to you, you know what I'm talking about. You walk around with the disgrace, a remorse that, you, you know, Peter's at this point in his life, he, he feels great disgrace, he feels great remorse, but he can't go back and undo the fact, I'm the one who denied you. I'm the one who didn't show up. But what Jesus is saying to him is, Peter, what I want you to understand is that when I went to a cross and I was stripped naked and exposed, I took your shame so that you could be covered with my righteousness. So that no one looks at you and defines you by the mistake that you made. 
And this rolls into the third piece of this, that a living Savior also means your identity is transformed. Now, as I said, all four Gospels record the fact that Jesus is, or that Peter is the one disciple who denied Jesus. He's the one that, that publicly said, I don't even know him. So we know that painful truth. But Jesus comes and says, you know what, Peter? Failure is what you did. Failure is not who you are. And he's saying, you did fail. You did deny me. But are you forever going to carry that baggage and carry that identity? Oh, Peter, he's just the guy that, that did this mistake way back there. And, and what he's showing him is denial is not your identity. Failure is not your identity. You know what your identity is, Peter? You're loved. You're accepted. I have a purpose. I have a mission for your life that only you can do because it's special to you. And he says here, feed my sheep. What he's saying is, take what you've seen, take what you've heard, and go nourish my people with the truth, with grace, because you know. You're an eyewitness to these things. And friends, I want you to think for a moment about your own lives where you need to believe this truth, that you have freedom from your past because of the work of Jesus, especially the resurrection. I want you to believe that in Christ, your past does not condemn you, your past does not control you, your past does not define you. You know, we've all done things that we regret. We've all have, have stories in our lives, episodes of our lives, but that doesn't become the narrative of our life in Jesus. You know, if Easter never happened, if Jesus is just a, a body in a tomb somewhere that's long since disintegrated, you would always have to wonder, how do I break free from my past? I mean, don't you just live a life and you die and that's it? Yeah, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But if Jesus did rise from the dead and he says, I, I cleansed all that away. You know, and there's a part of the New Testament that says, in Christ, your old person died and a new person came alive. That is your identity. That you also are loved and accepted, adopted into the family through the resurrection of Jesus. That he has a purpose and a mission for you as well. Now, there isn't a doubt in my mind that Peter got this message. I think for the first time in his life, he felt deeply humbled by this exchange with Jesus, but at the very same time, he felt freedom. Let's keep going from this, with the story because we see, secondly, not only does the resurrection of Jesus give you freedom from the past, but the resurrection of Jesus gives you power for the present. So we pick up the story in Acts, and you can turn to Acts 2 if you want to. This is where we're kind of picking up. But 50 days after Passover, which is the night that Jesus was betrayed, there's another huge feast in Jerusalem. It's called Pentecost. And at Pentecost, tens of thousands of Jews have come to, to celebrate the law of God, the Torah, the Mosaic law, and they're all there gathered at the temple. And the Bible tells us, Acts chapter 2, that all of a sudden, these disciples start doing strange things. They're doing miracles. They're speaking in tongues. Peter, the same Peter, okay, stands up in front of at least tens of thousands of hostile Jews, the very crowd that just demanded the crucifixion of Jesus, and he starts preaching, and probably in the temple. And he's saying things like this. He's saying, men of Israel, you have crucified Jesus of Nazareth. Got bad news for you. He's alive. Okay? God has raised him up. God has attested of his life that he is the true Messiah that we've waited for, that he is the Lord, that he is the Savior. And he says, and the only thing you can do at this point, because we are guilty of this crime, the only thing we can do is repent and put our faith in the name of Jesus. 
And you start thinking, where did Peter get all yoked up? You know, where did this come from? We, we know Peter. We know his timidity. We know his lack of confidence. How is he suddenly the spokesperson for early Christianity and Jesus? And it just continues. If you keep reading the Acts story, Acts chapter 3. So then he's at the temple. He heals this lame man in the temple and he takes the opportunity to preach basically the same message he preached in chapter 2. He says, look, you've killed the author of life. I would suggest that because God has raised him up, you should probably repent and trust in the one that God has raised from the dead. Chapter 4, he gets called before this official Jewish religious council, and they say, we demand to know an explanation of what you're doing. You're saying these things, you're doing these things, and they basically say, Peter, we know you, okay? Where did this power come from? And Peter says, I'm glad you asked. It's really simple. This is what he says. He says, I'm doing all of this by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom God raised from the dead. Let's, let's backtrack a little bit. There are some bookends to this story of Acts chapter 2. You know, in the closing chapters of the Gospels, Jesus came to his disciples and he said, I'm going away. When I die and I'm raised again, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You'll come. You know, you'll know the way because I am the way. And then he says, uh, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to deal feeling with, like, like orphans? And he says, I'm going to send my spirit. And you will be my witnesses when you've received this power of my spirit. And then Acts chapter 2 verse 4 says, Peter and the other disciples, they were filled with the spirit. And so what you see kind of as subpoints to this idea that the resurrection of Jesus means power for your present is first of all, a, a living savior empowers you to follow him personally. And this is what we understand about the life of Peter and others going forward from this point. You look at Peter and say, how did this radical transformation of your character take place? It was not because Peter looked deep within himself and suddenly saw something that he'd never seen before. Oh, sheer, sheer willpower. You know, courage. I, I never knew I had this store of courage deep, deep within myself. I'm determined to do better going forward than I did previously. It's, it's nothing like that. He, he himself would say, I experienced the power of Jesus coming alive within me because he went to the Father and he sent his spirit into me. Friends, are, how are you going to live for Christ today? I don't mean are you. I mean how are you going to? And I'm not being funny with this, but have you read the Bible? Have you read the words of a Jesus who says every single day you're supposed to die to yourself, take up your cross, and actually follow me if you're going to say that you're my followers? And there's stuff in there that I'm not saying, are you willing to do it? I'm saying, how are you going to do it? You're not going to look deeper within yourself and just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do better at the, at the Jesus thing. And that's not what God tells you. You know, the message of the gospel is not do your best. The message of the gospel is look to Jesus at the right hand of God and ask him to fill you with his power. And because he's risen, because he's alive, he listens to that request and he responds to your faith. And he sends power into your life. A living Savior empowers you to follow him personally. But you know also a living Savior empowers you to share him boldly. And this is what you see in the life of these guys who turned cowards, the disciples, 
that not just Peter, but suddenly all of them. And I want you to think about that, all of them, because they have a diversity of personalities. You know, maybe Peter was bold and brash, and you're like, he's always putting his foot in his mouth, so of course he would, you know, if he believed in the resurrection of Jesus, suddenly he would be all bold. But there were other guys that they were naturally very reserved. They were introverted. And you may relate with guys like that. You may say, you know, I find it very hard to strike up conversations with strangers, let alone talk about my faith with strangers. It's hard enough to talk about football and eating out and the new restaurant I tried, but talking about Jesus to a stranger, that's just not me. And I understand for many of you, it's not because you don't love Jesus that you have a hard time. And it's not because you don't want to see people get saved that you have a hard time. It's just you have a hard time. And the solution to that is not to look deeper within yourself, but the solution is, once again, look at Jesus on the right hand of God. He's alive. And when you say, I do love you, I do want to see other people transformed and enjoying the same freedom and the same power that I enjoy, how did they get that? I got to share. I can't. And God says, let me help you with that. Let me give you my power, the power of the Spirit. And you also know that Peter got this. Because if you continue through the book of Acts and then other letters, you you begin to realize Peter becomes one of the main heads of the early church in Jerusalem. He's part of councils that resolve big theological questions. And certainly he falls again and he gets back up. He repents and he believes in Jesus all over again. Not for salvation, but for day-to-day cleansing, for walking with his God. My final point comes from this idea that as Peter continues his life, he continues serving God for a number of years, he, he knows more and more Christians who are just scattered all over the Roman Empire. And maybe they don't even have a house church to attach themselves to. They don't have the opportunity for worship like you have this morning. And he writes them two letters, First Peter and Second Peter. I want you to listen to how he starts off the first letter of First Peter. And you can turn there if you want, First Peter Three through nine is what I'm referencing. Where now Peter's going to say, friends, I understand as you live this Christian life dispersed in the Roman Empire, life is a huge struggle. You're smacked upside the head with all kinds of trials. But I want you to know, and he says this, there is a living hope. You have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what I'm saying now this morning is not only do you have freedom from your past, Not only do you have power for your present, but Jesus says, because I'm risen, you have hope for your future. Now, we often use the word hope to describe wishful thinking. You know, I hope I win my March Madness bracket. It's not going to happen after last night. Okay? We'd say, like, I hope I find my soulmate. I I hope that all these different, I hope I get a raise. I hope I get a new job. And we're basically saying, this is something that I would desire, something that I want, but I'm not confident that it's actually going to happen. But Christian hope is a confident expectation. I see the promise of God. I hear the promise of God. I believe it. I accept that as fact. And the first thing that Peter says about this hope, it may surprise you, okay, where I go with this. But when he's talking about this future hope, the first thing he says to his friends is they're dispersed and they're, they're trying to live for Christ, but they're struggling with these trials. The first thing he says is, a living Savior gives you the assurance of purposeful trials. Purposeful trials. Why is that important? It's important, number one, because trials are a fact of life for everyone. 
You know, the fact that you have something going on in your life that is physically or mentally or emotionally or financially or relationally painful, that doesn't make you weird. It means you're human. You have a pulse. Because trials are just what happens in a broken world where nothing's quite right because Jesus hasn't returned yet. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that the resurrection didn't happen. So Jesus said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to cleanse your guilt. I'm going to, I'm going to cover your shame. I'm going to give you power. And then he died, and he stayed dead. What does that say to your trials? Well, it says, it says life's unfair. It says pain's pointless. It says there's nothing to look forward to that's going to make sense of what's going on. Have a good life. But if Jesus really is risen, what would that say to your suffering? You know, J.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, has a word for this. It's the word eucatastrophe. Good catastrophe. And what he does with this word eucatastrophe, and he defines the resurrection as like the greatest eucatastrophe that ever happened in human history. He's saying there was a sudden resolution. There was a complete reversal that everything horrible suddenly made sense. And isn't that what God is doing in the resurrection of Jesus, amongst other things? As he's saying, you thought that the trial, the horrors of Jesus on a cross, you thought it was pointless. You thought it was absurd. You thought it was like, God, if you even are there, you must be laughing at your son or you must be out to lunch. And God says, no, because in the resurrection of Jesus, you will understand. I had not just a purpose, but I had an eternally gracious purpose for the trial of Jesus. And I have an eternally gracious purpose for every single trial you walk through because I'm alive and I'm orchestrating it and I'm sovereign. I haven't given up on you. This stuff isn't just happening to you. And this is how Peter's encouraging the believers in their hardship here. Some of you that are going through deep trial, maybe even right now, isn't it true that sometimes you just want to know a reason? You know? Why, why is this happening to me? Well, what's the explanation? If I knew why, if I knew what this was accomplishing, I think I'd be okay. I'll give you a couple examples. You work out. Many of you, you know, you do CrossFit. You lift weights. You're runners. You go long distances. You submit your body to a tremendous amount of discomfort. Why? Well, there's a purpose. You want to look better. You want to feel better. You want to be healthier. And so you do these things because you know, here's the purpose. Here's the point. I can put up with the pain because there's a point. Or how about pregnancy? From what I understand, that's not comfortable for like 40 weeks. And then it's really not comfortable for like several hours or a couple of days. But there's a reward. You get a baby. There's a difference between pointless, absurd suffering and suffering that you say, I understand. I understand the outcome. I understand what God is doing. And look back, if you're in First Peter 3, this is what he's saying here. He's saying, because Christ is risen, what is the outcome of your suffering? Because Christ is alive, the outcome of your suffering is the salvation of your souls. You will be alive forever with him. So he's saying, a living Savior gives the assurance of purposeful trials. And then finally, a living Savior gives you the assurance of eternal life. And again, if, if Jesus had promised eternal life through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and he just stayed dead, we would have no hope. 
And I will refer you to the words of the, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ is not raised, if that one thing didn't happen, your faith is worthless. You know, do you know that? If everything else about Christianity and the Bible were true this morning and Jesus did not raise, and that's the only thing that's not true, Paul says, fold your Bible, close it, walk away, and live whatever life you want because your faith is entirely empty if Jesus is not raised. But he goes on to say, but Jesus is raised. And the fact that he's raised means that you will be raised too. You know, and he calls them the first fruits of resurrection, which is like this. You know, sometimes I, I plant this garden in front of our house here in Stapleton, and sometimes the, the labels blow off, or I just forget to label everything I've put in there, and stuff starts coming up. And I think, oh, no, I don't remember if this is Brussels sprouts or carrots. And now if you're a botanist, you're like, how could you not know the difference? Well, I mean, to me, when everything starts coming out of the ground, it's just green, okay, and I'm happy. So I'm looking at this and thinking, I have no idea what this is. But, but if something comes out of the ground and it starts growing and it bears a certain fruit, well, then I know, okay, that's a cherry tomato plant. What else is going to come from that plant later on? More cherry tomatoes. And this is what the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus, that because he's risen bodily, physically, and he's the first fruits of this kind of resurrection, you know as followers of Christ, this is how we too will be raised. And that's what he's saying here in First Peter as well. So do you see, friends, the massive significance, the massive scope of the resurrection this morning? That it speaks over your whole life from beginning to end. It speaks over your past and it says there is absolutely nothing in your past that can condemn you or hold you back from what God wants if your sins are covered in the blood of Christ because he lives. You know, and because he lives, by the way, it's not just that his blood washed away your sins, but what that means is your advocate, your defense attorney, as it were, is sitting alive at the right hand of God. He's the one that has the ear of the Father. And as you pray and say, forgive my sins, he's the one saying, Father, forgive their sins. I died. I covered it. It's good. Your past, you're free. Your presence, you have power. You know, again, if, if you walked in here this morning thinking like, oh, the Christian life, you know, that's like, uh, you know, do your best at being good and think you're better than everyone else. That's not anybody's idea. Not here of what Christianity is about. That's not the gospel. It's not that we're good people doing good things. It's that we're broken people. We're helpless people apart from Jesus. But we have Jesus. And therefore we have power both for our own personal transformation, our own personal growth and walk with the Lord, and also for just sharing this good news with other people when we leave here. And finally, you have this unspeakable, unshakable hope for all your tomorrows. Peter referred to it as, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you by the one who died and rose again. And if this sounds like good news, I'm free from my past, I have power for my present, I have hope for the future, it's because it is good news. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus this morning and you're, you're sitting there thinking, I, I don't feel that sense of just a weight has been taken off me. My past does not condemn me or define me. I don't have that kind of power that you talked about. I don't have the hope. I don't know what's going to happen. Then I invite you this morning before you even leave here to come into a relationship with Christ. And he's made it very simple. He just says, turn from your own way of doing things and believe. Believe that what I did was sufficient and I save you. Um, if you do know these things, if you do know Christ 
and you look at your life right now and you think, I, I don't experience the kind of freedom and the kind of power and the kind of hope that you talked about, then let's keep the conversation going. And, you know, if your members here, you can go talk to your pastors and say, how do we, how do we walk through some of these things? I want to experience more of the freedom that he talked about this morning because that's there for you in Christ, okay? So because he's risen, you are free. You are strong. You are hopeful.